This is episode number 36 with Michael Grijsseels, Chief Digital Officer at CP Group and Angel Investor. Welcome to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. My name is Andrew Senduk, a former banker turned tech entrepreneur. And in each episode, I interview the movers and shakers of the venture capital and investment space in Southeast Asia, with the only goal to help you discover how to raise more capital, build better companies, and to give you a better understanding of the people behind the biggest funds in the region. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Now let's get started. All right, beautiful people, welcome to a new day, a new episode, and I'm excited uh, to sit across uh, a Belgian, a Belgian now based in Singapore, actually always traveling back and forth between Singapore and, and Bangkok, Michael Grijsseels, that's the correct way to pronounce it. Uh, we got introduced through uh, Max Shukfaruk uh, from Atlas, so Max, if you're listening, a big shout out to you, thank you so much. Uh, I'm excited for today because um, uh, Michael is... Uh, has been in the region for a very long time as well, has been kind of like witnessing how the tech industry uh, evolved uh, and is a very active angel investor. Uh, Michael, you've been doing a lot of different things, but I think a few things that I want to highlight. Uh, McKinsey has been a very big chapter within your corporate career, you know, 18 plus years, uh, and you've been leading the, 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 the Southeast Asian development specifically within digital for McKinsey. So I'd love to hear more about that because I think those were definitely the first steps within uh, yeah, within the whole tech ecosystem, let's say, and especially within this region. Uh, currently, our chief digital officer of uh, Sharun uh, Pokhant Group, um, a big conglomerate in Thailand, uh, and your executive vice chairman as well of True Digital Group. Um, so, Michael, welcome to the show. Happy to see you and happy that you're healthy. How are you doing? Hi, Andrew. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been it's my pleasure to 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 be here with you and. Uh, you know, uh, thank you and Brownie Point for pronouncing my last name. Very few people are able to do that, but I guess with your Amsterdam roots, you, you, you're able to do it. Uh, I, I, I have to laugh. I think it's probably 10 years that someone was able to pronounce my exactly, last name. Right? Exactly, exactly. How long have you been in the region now? Be close, uh, it's going to be close to 10 years. I, I arrived in 2013, so, you know, we're, we're getting yeah. close to 10 years in Southeast Asia. It's, it's been a great time. Yeah, so awesome. So maybe we, we arrived at the same 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 time because I was I also moved from Amsterdam to Jakarta in 2013, so it's been an interesting uh, interesting ride. So maybe just to kick it off, and I think that's also a nice way to kind of like step into the whole uh, let's say corporate side and then into the tech and the, all the the high paced tech world we live in right now. What's been the journey within McKinsey and then that um, the digital lead that you were doing within the region? Yeah, no, thank you, Andrew. I mean, first of all, I. Um... I've always been a, a nerd uh, and I still consider myself as a nerd. I, uh, you know, I had my first computer, I think at age six or seven wow. and uh, have been, uh, you know, I've always been fascinated with technology. I wanted to be an inventor when I was small, um, did a PhD in computer science and actually ended up in McKinsey completely by uh, coincidence. Uh, it was never a plan actually when they reached out to a headhunter, I had no clue what McKinsey was. And uh, they had to spend, I mean, many people, you know, work very hard to get into McKinsey. In my case, they yeah. were very convinced me what the hell I was <laughs> going to do there. Uh, but I was hired in McKinsey in 2000, you know, the, you know, the first dot-com uh, boom. Uh, actually, just before the bust, uh, they hired a bunch of like, uh, people like us because they wanted to expand into tech. Mm. And yeah, and I 
Uh, to be honest, I uh, I joined in the end because uh, to me, I did feel like I knew a lot about tech. I didn't know a lot about business and I saw it as a way to learn something more about business. I thought I was going to stay just a few years and then move on and, you know, create a, create my own startup. Um, you know, the bubble burst that, that you know, <laughs> that dream uh, kind of, I put it on hold uh, <laughs> and I sticked around. I sticked around and I stayed almost 20 years at McKinsey. Uh, wow. I, you know, if you don't at the time, I would never believe it. But, you know, it's been an amazing ride because, uh, you know, McKinsey offered me many opportunities and particularly allowed me together with a few other partners to shape new practices for McKinsey. And I, I you know, what I'm most proud and I still look backwards with, you know, you know, with, 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 with uh, you know, a lot of great feelings and and, and of achievement and and, and and pride is is we we built McKinsey Digital Labs, which was McKinsey's foray into building digital ventures. Uh, and you know, McKinsey is mostly historically hired mostly people with a business background. And you know, we started to hire software engineers and designers and you know data scientists. And you know, we started helping clients building tech. Uh, which at the time was quite revolutionary when we did it in, you know, I think we started in 12. I came to uh, Asia to build that practice uh, here uh, for Asia. Uh, I was alone initially. I, you know, when I left, we were 500 people, uh, many wow. of them ex entrepreneurs, uh, ex, yeah. uh, you know, real technical gurus. And, and we did, we did uh, you know, we built some of the first digital banks here in the region. Um, and you know, beyond banking, we you know we we help mining companies, oil plantations, uh, or you know, palm oil plantations, oil and gas companies. So we we, we have played uh, a a role, uh, I would hope, in in that first wave of digital transformation in the region. And yeah, so that's uh, you know, I left in the end because I you know I wanted uh, to you know after twenty years, I said like there's probably more in life than this. Than just be an advisor and i got a great opportunity at cp so that's that's where i'm now that's amazing that's amazing i think that i mean uh, coming from a consulting background as well i mean having you know honestly speaking there's a lot of uh, my old colleagues you know i started in 2004 i think deloitte uh, consulting uh, a few of my friends there have become partner now after about 13 14 15 years whatever uh, and it is kind of like the you know the position right i mean it's the position so i think even if you you know after so many years you still want to leave that comfortable situation i think that also requires a bit of uh there's definitely a bit of um yeah maybe i don't know if you have to convince yourself a lot you know going stepping out of that comfort zone it's been a, it's a hot bed right i mean if you're there 20 years it's it's almost like uh McKinsey yeah, and to honest, <laughs> yeah to be honest i mean most people uh you know at, when they're you know at, at kind of my level they stay around until they retire but i i felt like life is too short uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't believe in, you know, reincarnation. So I think we've got only one life. We've yeah. got to make the best of, you know, the, the biggest constraint is how much life you've got left to, to yeah. have great experience. And I, I yeah. felt that there was more in life than, than just uh, McKinsey. Uh, despite that, I still look back at it as a great place. I love and so, yeah, I, I, I got an opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, offered by the shareholder and, 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 you know, chairman of the CP group to work for him and help him on technology. Uh, I've been uh, the chief digital officer of the group, uh, as well as uh, overlooking uh, True Digital, which is the digital business of True. Uh, and, you know, actually I've done, you know, I've had the opportunity to help the group on, on many of its uh, digital efforts whether that's building digital businesses or transforming the existing businesses. And it's been a, it's been a, you know, I've 
in now 10 years in Asia, it's been also an interesting experience to work for an Asian company. I've learned a lot more about Asia uh, in, in that way than just, you know, working in an American company serving local clients. Yeah, yeah, because then we talk about things as culture and uh, all these type of unwritten rules uh, within an uh, Asian culture uh, of, of building business. So, um, so McKinsey kind of like, you know, when you came, you, you, you were the pioneer of the whole digital movement within McKinsey, especially within the region. So what's been the transition from, you know, kind of what incubating or building that environment where McKinsey was actually developing tech for their clients to, um, to starting to put in your own money? Because I think that's, that's a very interesting transition looking at from an, let's say, corporate employee. You know, you, you, you provide that environment so that, you know, these things can be built towards actually investing your own money into uh, entrepreneurs or new initiatives that you think um, will have uh, high potential. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think to me this, uh, you know, this goes back to 20 years ago where actually... Um, just before I joined McKinsey, I think the alternative was actually for me to, to create my own startup. Yeah. And uh, actually, I tried and I, you know, I went for fundraising. And I, at the time, I, it was challenging. And actually, one of the reasons I joined McKinsey is that I didn't raise money for my startup. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad alternative, actually. That's not a bad alternative. I can't raise money, so I just joined McKinsey. And inside, it probably was a good decision. But uh, yeah, so I've, I've always had appreciation uh you know for for the right type of founders that yeah. you know severe um and so i've been doing angel investing for the last 10 years and it's been you know i i've never seen it as something uh financial i've seen it more as my own contribution yeah you know, to, i like that to helping you know my former self yeah, uh, like and 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 particularly where I spend my time, where, where I guess it, what is different from my journey as an angel investor versus others is I have, um, uh, I have a particular bias and interest in companies with a deeper technical or scientific uh, backing. Yeah. Uh, so my portfolio investments are, you know, what these days are called deep tech companies. Yeah. I mean, the old were just tech, but, you know, companies that have a competitive advantage uh, from technology where the founders are often PhDs yeah, and maybe. don't have that business background. And, you know, in a way, again, I, I kind of find back my former self. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so it's for me, uh, you know, I, you know, I, when I do angel investments, most of the time it is, it is, it is as much about that founder and about the company. And, you know, uh, for me, the, the ability to, you know, to add value mm. uh, to the venture yeah. is, uh, is, is definitely you know, one driver of why I'm doing it. I love that. I love that. And uh, I oftentimes have these discussions with, especially with deep tech investors who, you know, uh, quote unquote, invest more in um, the, the, the brain, you know, the, the tech really behind, uh, behind this, this startup. Uh, and like you said, oftentimes our, our PhDs, our, our, our researchers, our academic researchers, for example. But I always say that, you know, a startup, there's always... I mean, at the end of the day, there's, there's two roles, right? There's a builder and there's a seller. And uh, oftentimes when we talk about tech, um, well, my, my question to you is, do you sometimes feel with these type of entrepreneurs who are, let's say, more theoretical, um, more academic, how they approach uh, problems, is there, is there a gap on the selling part or works kind of like, what is there, because it's a different type of entrepreneur. 
I, I would say, but I would love to hear your, your thoughts. Like, are, are these different types of entrepreneurs? And is there a gap with the selling part? Because, you know, I think the building part and the, the thinking part is definitely covered, I assume. But where, where's, the, where's the gap there with those types of entrepreneurs? Yeah, so I think, I think it's a fair question. I think the, um, I have two, um, uh, two views on your question. I think um, any startup, whether it's actually deep tech or not, typically requires, you know, more than one person. And, you know, and I, I generally believe that more than one founder is actually better than just one founder. Yeah. You know, you, it's difficult to find all the competencies to succeed in a company, in a startup, in one single person. So I, I do, uh, and many of my startups, I mean, those of, you know, the founders that are listening, they know that I, I, I do push on, on recruiting. I, I, I actually often play a role in recruiting and not that I'm a headhunter, but I'll, 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 I'll give them advice as to what should be the right team. And I'll, you know, I'll go out of my way to help them to recruit people, yeah. including interviewing and, and convincing people to join the startup. So that, I think that's one part of it. So I think they need to be complimented. Secondly, I think for, for deep tech, um, because the proposition is itself typically technical, the founder mm. and his conviction and passion is often, you know, assuming he, he, he or she can articulate it well, are often the best selling vehicle um so they may not have commercial skills but you know if they're able to articulate in a very passionate way what's mm. unique about the product uh they can sell they yeah. may not they may not know it's selling they may but let's say at the end of the day selling is some it is about persuasion yeah uh, and it's articulating a value proposition that that they're able to do but yeah they need help of course they need help yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And, and how does it work with, because I think I think for, for any type of investor, whether it's angel or, or let's say institutional, I think pipeline is always, uh, is always the thing, right? We talk always about like, how do you get the quality entrepreneurs? And I think when we talk about uh, quality within deep tech, maybe that, that pipeline is even more specific, right? It's not your mainstream type of, oh, anyone who wants to start a business, like come to my table. You're looking for a very a niche set of, of, of entrepreneurs that are, uh, really developing new technologies, you know, whether it's, uh, I don't know, semiconductor or IOTs or, you know, those type of things. And how do you make sure that, that you talk to the right people that fit your investment thesis? I think after a while, um, you know, let's say deal flow has never, I mean, particularly not in the last years, has not been a problem. Mm. Um, after a while, I mean, the reality is, and you know, we should talk about Southeast Asia, but the, the Southeast Asia ecosystem, in my view, and I've you know I've lived in the US and in Europe, is still is still well, nascent, and it's a, so it's a small, it, it's a small world. And frankly, yeah. um, I, I think I know all the VCs in Singapore that do either deep tech or B two B, and I you know I know all of the players, whether that's you know the governments, the universities, and they know me. Um, so there will be very few companies that I haven't heard of. And so, Mm. you know, there's always one in my network that will pull me in because they know, they know that I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on this. Yeah. So everything being deep tech, I, uh, you know, I, my, my challenge is more, I have more deal flow that I can handle that. That's my challenge these days is, is the ability to process it. Yeah. So that would mean, I mean, would, is it correct? And did I say, because you've been in the region for let's say 10 plus years, specifically within, within the digital you know, uh, ecosystem, the tech ecosystem, stakeholders within 
within this specific niche, they know of you or they know you. And that's actually what's guaranteeing you of, you know, new pitch decks going your way and, you know, meeting the right, right people. And then also is that, you know, founders, actually, I, I, I get also quite some referrals from founders yeah. that refer yeah. to other founders. Yeah. So, yeah. so I have not found, uh, but then there's, you know, quality deal flow is, is, is then the next step, right? You know, so yeah. and how you distinguish the, 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 the great ones from the, you know, the average ones. But yeah. That, so, how, that, so how do you do that? That's a, that's a very good question. Like the, the average ones and the great ones. I mean, um, I think especially when we talk about investing in general, it's kind of like, a, you know, you invest 100 and uh, 10 need to be good and 90 are like more. You know, I think the, um, I'm not sure I'm going to, on this question, I'm going to tell anything uh, new versus what you've discussed with other guests. But, you know, I, I think it always boils down to, in my view, three things. I mean, first of all, the founders. Mm. Um, and... You know, I um, this is probably where I've learned the most over the last ten years. I think, I actually believe that it's not just the competence of the founders and the drive and the persuasion; it's also their mindset, their attitude. Are they mm. willing to listen? Are they humble? Yeah. Do they recognize their own blind spots? Mm. Are they open? Uh, some of my most disappointing investments have been with founders that, you know, are so convinced of themselves that they'll you know, they're not leveraging the, the people around them yeah. uh, that could or want to help them. Yeah. So I think I, I do spend a lot of time with founders. I take my time in some, it, it, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it's happened quite often that I spend a year or half a year getting to know a company, staying in touch before I invest. Yeah. Um, I think that's number one. I think number two is, um, which I think is, is particularly important here in Southeast Asia is market opportunity and market readiness. You know, are they, um, you know, are they addressing a problem that is big enough and, and is the market willing to pay for it? Mm. Um, and for some companies, Southeast Asia is, is simply not big enough and they need yeah. to take a global. Yeah. And then I would say early is, uh, you know, it's the business model and competitive advantage. You know, is it is it going to be sustainable, or is someone will will someone be able to, to you know to copy it? And you know, is yeah. the business model sound? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, like business models and uh, let's say financial models. Uh, the beautiful thing, and especially when when we talk about angel investing, we talk about early stage. Uh, the beautiful thing about Excel is, of course, Excel will follow any model, any extrapolation that you put in the model, right? You know, it's uh, the, the one thing that is, I mean, I'll tell you what I've where I've not invested is there, there are business, I mean, let's say they, there are certain startups which raise a significant amount of money without clarity on the business model, you know, without unit economics, <laughs> that makes sense. And so for me, I mean, maybe that's where I'm kind of old school or maybe too biased by my 20 years of McKinsey. I, I need to see where the money is going to come from. If yeah. I, 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 I don't believe in, in, in startups that just burn yeah. and, you know, you know, future profits will come without knowing yeah. where they'll come. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah, I do spend more time on that than probably others. That, that is good. So what do, you, what do you think about that? I mean, um, when you see nowadays, I mean, uh, this is a discussion I often have is that, you know, the market has changed and you know, uh, you know, as I know that, you know, in the last 10 years in Southeast Asia, you know, the $100 million of Tokopedia was kind of like a tipping point for Southeast Asia where SoftBank came in and, you know, big money, big money came in to, to the region. Um, but nowadays, you know, these rounds are 
are getting pretty pretty pumped up, right? Pretty pretty crazy. Uh, I was just reading like I think a seed round, or they now call it like a pre a pre seed round. But a pre seed round could be like fifteen million dollars, right? So what do you what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about the, because again, pre seed round fifty million dollars. That means like pre seed post money valuation is going to be like fifty million dollars. You know, again, I'll, I'll I'll give you two views. I mean, I think. Let's say I'll give you the the secular, you know, longer term view, and then I'll give you the, you know, I think what is happening right now. I think from a secular long term perspective, I believe it makes sense for Southeast Asia to get more capital. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not the first one to say this. I mean, others have done interesting analysis on this, but Southeast Asia is somewhere, you know, 10, 15 years behind from a you know, venture capital perspective to, mm. to China, uh, probably 10 years behind India. And if you look at those two markets, there has been a certain trend, right? And, um, you know, I, if you look also in Southeast Asia, you know, that there is, I think right now, a pretty robust Series A, Series B funding, Series C and Series D. Yes, you got the soft banks and the domestics and, you know, a few like that, but still, uh, I think, so I believe that, um, the region, uh, that's where, you know, it's, it's still, the region is still maturing. And I think yeah. uh, larger, you know, particularly in later rounds, larger rounds. I mean, I, you know, yes, there have been some companies that have been able to raise from the likes of SoftBank and the like, but, you know, there's, there's too few of them. And I think, I, I, I hope that institutional investors, um, you know, including institutional investors from US and Europe will will pay more attention to Southeast Asia. And I believe that, you know, the listings of C and Grab, et cetera, will help because, you know, investors will realize that, you know, they can't just wait for those companies to be public, you know, to benefit from the growth here. Um, I, and I believe also, you know, from a number of other factors, whether that's geopolitical or so, I think Southeast Asia presents interesting exposure to emerging markets without some of the complexity that China has uh, today. So I, you know, do I, I, I believe it makes sense that we're, we'll see larger rounds. Then there's, you know, your second question: Do it, you know, 15 million pre-seed rounds? Does that make sense? You know, I, I think there is uh, some inflation, uh, particularly in certain markets, uh, you know, like the one you're in, uh, that I, is, is at least for me yeah. difficult to fully understand, and it does make me feel a little bit, you know, like 1999. <laughs> which and you know i'm old enough <laughs> to have that memory and i've seen one bubble collapse and you know i i do think we um uh, there's a flood of cheap capital there's also you know some uneducated capital being invested yeah, yeah. Uh, and that makes it harder to uh, you know it makes it harder to kind of find the right opportunities because you know some of those early stage valuations in my view don't, don't make sense anymore and, and I would also, you know, just caution for those that are too enthusiastic about that is times can change quickly. And I, you know, uh, I definitely uh, believe that this year um, there might be corrections, you know, with interest rates going up in the US, we might see corrections in public markets, which will have impact uh, private markets as well. Um, you know, to the founders out there, I would say raise while you can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. To the yeah, investors. Yeah. investors out there you know just uh, you know particularly at early stage uh you know be careful on valuations yeah. Yeah. i've always been i've always been careful with valuations at early stage and in the long term i think uh, that is i've been proven right on that one but you know 
Um, yeah, so that that's my view, Andrew. So yeah, I like that. No, I like that. And and I think especially in the early stage, like uh, evaluation is is the thing. Of course, when you're one of the early investors, like what is what is kind of like your protocol? What your what are the steps you take? What are what's the ticket size you usually write? Can you share more a bit about your just the process from just meeting meeting your potential startups that you want to invest in up until investing in them and um, like equity yeah, you, you get. I've always followed, I've always followed a very disciplined approach. Um, so I, I I have like a I never make I mean I've made some big bets maybe in the distant past where I've learned the hard way. But my um, my approach in the last uh, you know in last at least five years has been to be quite disciplined and uh, at least on equity, uh, never write a check more than 100K. Uh, and then, you know, rather invest again. Uh, so I I believe, I actually believe that the best investments that you do are follow-on investments. Mm. Uh, and there's been companies, uh, there's one company where I followed up in at least four rounds. Wow. Uh, and so I rather expand my position over time than make a too big bet early on. Yeah. Um, I think you learn a lot from, you learn, I mean, you are more educated once you've been invested for one year in a company than, you know, any type of due diligence that you can do. Yeah. And so I, I try to restrain myself and not put in too much, uh, in the first, uh, in the first round and, you know, keep some, keep some money later on. Uh, then in some cases I've done syndicates. Um, I've even done uh, venture debt syndicates. You know when where we pull money from different investors. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, obviously the check sizes can be much much larger. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 DD wise, like uh, okay, so you say so you say it's max hundred k. Um. Uh. What about how does your DD look like? I mean, um, early stage again. Early stage. There's not. There's not a whole data room you know i mean maybe there is but it's, it's gonna be a small one right yeah no i think it's it's back to those three things that i shared before i think for i think the most important is to spend time with the founders and you know mm. if, if they're in singapore and i can meet them and I'll, i'd like to meet them and i'll meet them multiple times and i think it's um, you try to get to know the person yeah i believe in early stage more than anything you invest in the founders yeah yeah like them personally money so i yeah. think it's about to know them and you know is there a scientific approach to that? I don't think so. I think it's yeah. more uh, intuition and, and, and you know, and, uh, you, know you, you just test them out. You see how they react to questions. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, sometimes you, you ask references, you, start, you speak to people that know them for longer. Yeah. Um, that, that's on, there's, I think, on the market, that's where data is possible. You're like, you know, how big is this market? Give me yeah. evidence. I, um, I, you know, one of my requirements is I typically want to see a product and a customer. Um, so I, you know, if I will never invest to companies that just present me a PowerPoint. So I'd like to see, I actually believe that customer validation uh, is, is very important. So, mm. you know, uh, so often I will speak to customers while I would ask to speak to customers. Yeah. Uh, to see what are they saying about the product? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, again, I'm a, you know, I, I'm mostly a B. So, you know, yeah. it's, this of customers that can even if they don't have much revenue i mean i think customer feedback is, is is important and then i think yeah on commercial and you know let's say on business model and strategy you know that's where it's again mostly conversation rather than data room analysis and it's you know you know most startups pivot there and it's like do they have more than one option to succeed 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I think with, with investing in general, you want to take out the luck and put in a system in that sense to at least hedge your downside and optimize your upside, right? I mean, and then especially in this stage where, you know, like you said, it's, it's a lot on relationship. It's, it's really understanding the mindset, the mindset of the entrepreneur. And of course, also a bit of the business model, the numbers need to make sense. But within, within scanning these people, within scanning these people, right? What have you seen, like what if, let's say from all the investments, if, if I may ask, like how many investments have you done so far? Let's say, is there any ballpark figure of, of, of tickets you've done so far? 50. 50. So let's say of these 50 people, um, is there a red line? Is there a red line? You, you mentioned those three, three topics, right, we, that you always look at, but is there a red line regarding um, personalities or characteristics where you say, like, okay, you know, actually all these people have this in common because at the end of the day, again, coming back to trying to hedge your downside, optimize your upside. Is there any red line when you talk about those 50 people? I would say the, the one thing that I, I've noticed that um, uh, successful founders have in common is they are uh, resourceful. Mm. Uh, what I mean by that, they know how, um, you know, a startup always will have a small team, you know, always the gaps. They know how to leverage others. Yeah. They, 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 yeah. they leverage more than their company. They leverage yeah. their investors, their, their network, uh, their stakeholders, the government. Uh, those that are good at that are, have an above average chance of succeeding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that's one. I think second is, you know, uh, hard work matters. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, the... You know, hard work and perseverance matters. And, you know, I think the, 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 the intrinsic commitment of startups, uh, of startup founders is, is, is a key factor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, there, there's not a single startup that I know that hasn't had their own challenge, hasn't hit the wall sometimes. And yeah. then the question is how to bounce back. And not all bounce back, you know, some give up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if I've been lucky or I've been, you know, able to judge well, but... I have, out of the 50, 50 investments that I've made, very few have ever given up. Mm. Very few. So um, mm. I think right now in my portfolio, I, I have a, only a single writer. Oh, wow. That's amazing. You know, uh, you know time will tell. I mean, because, you know, yeah, many yeah. of them are kind of private and, you know, there's yeah. not been an exit. Yeah. And I, th I think it's important. I, that's why I really believe in getting to know the founder, uh, getting to know their their ultimate motivation, their mindset, yeah. you know, yeah. just to know them well is, 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 is probably the most important. Yeah. And, and do you have any thoughts about maybe institutionalizing because you've been angel investing for, for a long time now and, you know, uh, is there any ideas or dreams that you have of, you know, eventually like launching your own fund or? Yeah, I've thought about it, but I, um, I think, uh, you know, the scene here in Singapore, particularly, I mean, at early stage, it's already uh, quite well uh, established. So you would yeah. need to find some differentiating. Uh, and, you know, I, right now, I, I only invest, with the exception of a couple of syndicates that I've done, I mean, I only invest my own money. It's a very yeah. different responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and and you know what I what I like most about startup investing is is about spending the time with the companies and helping them uh, helping yeah. them grow. Yeah. Um, you know I, I I I've got many good friends in the VC scene and respect them a lot, but. Mm. My observation is that they spend the majority of their time managing their LPs as a business. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that's definitely a good point. I mean, now it's, like you said, it's your own money and you're so flexible and you can do whatever you want, quote unquote. And there's no politics per se to, you know, to do a, take, take into consideration. And um, so that's very interesting. And when, when you look at, uh, at early stage, right, there's a lot of accelerators around, uh, around the globe and especially also in Southeast Asia. Um, do you have a similar approach in a sense where you say like, okay, it's going to be max 100K for let's say 10% or 20% equity. Is, is there always like a standard way that you come in? I think that depends really on the opportunity. There have been startups where I was the first investor, mm. uh, which is always a little bit scary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that door, those are kind of my high conviction bets. Yeah. Uh, um, and then there have been rounds where I just participated um, uh, together with VC. Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, probably most of the time I'm participating as part of a round. Got it. And I, that the one thing also that I've learned is that it's actually good to invest together with others. So that's, yeah. that's another, I, I didn't bring it up earlier, but I, you know, I have a job, I have a daytime job. So yeah, I, exactly. you know, yeah. So, uh, you know, it's I I prefer to invest when others are investing, either yeah. other agents that I know and that yeah. I trust, or VC, uh, because you know then you, you, you're not the only one who's looking after the company, yeah. and then you're more selective in where you add value versus if you're the only investor right. or one of few, it's quite yeah. different. Uh, and so yeah, so that's so I would say probably eighty percent of the time I'm participating as part of a round. Uh, it also means that, um, you know, the, the terms and the valuations are set by a professional investor, yeah. Got it. Uh, which I think makes things easier. Yeah, totally. having... makes total sense. I, like you said, I just wanted to ask you, actually, I mean, uh, it's not that you have like a, a part-time job or something where you just clock in like 10 hours a day, right? I mean, you got a pretty heavy, uh, <laughs> heavy corporate job uh, and then still investing at, at the side. So, so that's, uh, how do you juggle that, actually? Like, how is that? Uh, do you sleep or? Yeah, so I... No, I mean, I think first of all, you know, the 50 portfolio companies have built them over 10 years. So it's, yeah. it's, uh, and so, you know, they don't need all the same attention. Uh, so I'm very selective where I spend my time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing journey. When we talk about uh, South Asia, uh, you know, deep tech, we talk about deep tech. What are kind of like the main, let's say the top three areas that you really believe are going to, are going to quote unquote explode in the coming coming years ahead, like coming five years, what industries are you very bullish about? Yeah, so I mean, if I look at it from a solid stage, so I, you know, I, I just as a caveat, I do global investments, not just solid Asia. Um, but uh, with respect to solid Asia, there's three teams that I'm bullish about. The first team is uh, everything that has to do with sustainability and climate. Um, so renewable energy, uh, you know, wastewater, um, uh, you know, alternative foods. I mean, so electric vehicles. Yeah. So, you know, I think this region um, is behind 
in terms of electrification is behind in terms of implementing sustainability. And I believe there will be both a need, governance support and capital to support that transition. Um, and I think in many ways it, it may help the, I mean, the region has an infrastructure deficit and, and I think the sustainability, the climate angle may help to overcome that. Uh, so let's say that that you know I'm I'm, I'm bullish on on, on 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 you know deep tech startups that that address that you know and then there's different sub verticals. I think that's number one. Number two, and you know I'm part of a uh, group that is big in agri-food. I believe that agriculture is is probably you know one of the most important sectors still in Southeast Asia. And if you look at agriculture in specifically, it is a sector that except for industrialization has um, not yet seen uh, major technology adoption. And, you know, there's, um, there is, a, I think there's a lot that is possible, you know, um, both in terms of technology that helps to increase the productivity of the farmers, as well as in biotech, you know, whether that's genetics or food um, or yeast management or, you know, the whole uh, restructuring of the value chain, uh, you know, there's, this is a region of small farmers that uh, are challenged. You know, they, they sell their, you know, whether they are chicken farmers or shrimp farmers, they sell their food to many of the intermediaries. And there's a lot of money that is lost in that value chain. Um, so I think getting them more, um, you know, giving them more fair access to global supply chains, uh, giving them more access to financing, that's where technology can help. Um, just just uh, this week, uh, I think the uh, 100 million round of e-fishery was announced. I'm not an investor. I'm not an investor in e-fishery, but I think it's a great demonstration uh, of the potential uh, of agtech for this region. You know, and and if you think about e-fishery, it's shrimp Indonesia, right? Yeah. So it's probably not. They're probably not even touching one percent of agriculture. Yeah. In, in Southeast Asia. So I'm quite bullish about, uh, about AgTech in the broad sense. And, you know, the combination of AgTech, FinTech, Marketplace, you know, if you, you, know, if you, if you think FinTech and, and Marketplace have had their applications in other sectors, you combine it with agriculture, I think yeah. that's a very powerful recipe. So I think we will see more companies like the fishery in, in the next coming years. And then uh, I would say that the third domain is, um, you know, health because uh, I believe this is a region that, uh, uh, you know, where again, just historically the health infrastructure is not as developed as it is in other regions and technology can help. Um, and so, you know, I think the first wave has been digitalization of health, you know, teleconsultation, and, uh, that which to me is, you know, it's, that to me is incremental innovation. But, you know, I think if you, if you combine teleconsultation with new medical technologies, um, you know, whether that's, you know, AI supported medical imaging, you know, you to allow a remote diagnostic, et cetera. I, I believe there is a potential to radically improve the productivity uh, in the healthcare space, which, you know, can have a social impact. It means more people can get access to health. So I believe those three, you know, agriculture, agriculture, uh, health, and then climate, sustainability, uh, I think those are three areas that particularly in Southeast Asia and deep tech can have a major relevance. Beautiful, beautiful. And I, th I think what you said there, like incremental, incremental innovation versus like radical change of, of industries, I think that's a very, uh, very interesting 
uh, view on you know these innovations that are happening that we see uh, day to day. Um, so yeah, amazing, uh, amazing views. Uh, Michael, final question of the interview. Uh, I want you to uh, kind of like um, imagine imagine a day far, far away into the future. And uh, on this specific day, there is a search engine. Not sure what the search engine is called, but there's a search engine. And I, I look up your name. Look up Michael Gray Sales. Uh, there's nothing I can find on any type of website. Uh, but Google only shows me three bullet points. And these three bullet points are the, the life lessons that Michael Gray Sales wants to leave the world with. What would those three bullet points be? I would say be happy, be honest, help others. You know, I, and it may sound very simple, but, um, uh, you know, I think for me, the, the last two years, this pandemic has, you know, has been to a certain extent a humbling experience, right? It shows, it shows how little we have in control. It shows how, how fast radical things can change. And I think that, um, there is, uh, you know, many, many people, many companies are in pursuit of, you know, corporate success, individual success, etc. At the end of the day, life is short. <laughs> and uh, I believe in having a perspective, you know, half glass, half full perspective of what you have and, you know, be happy uh, with, you know, whatever situation you're in. And I think second, I, I do believe personally uh, that, um, you know, integrity, um, you know, responsibility, you know, those kind of things. And, you know, whether that's your, whether you're a corporate leader, whether you're an investor, whether you're a founder, I think those things matter. I think, and I think, I think we will, there's always shortcuts, but I believe that the people that take the shortcuts in the end, um, you know, uh, may not get where they, they expect to be. You know, and then I think finally, again, I believe that, uh, you know, in my, yeah, I'm, you know, I've had a wonderful corporate career and hope I can still achieve a lot. But, uh, you know, I'm in the phase of my life where I, I'm, I'm looking to contribute back and, and I you know I, I find it more important that uh, to be helpful to others uh, and give back uh, at this point. And um, I hope that will be recognized. I love that. I love that. Great way to end the interview. Uh, three, but these three, three points usually they always sound so, you know, uh, straightforward. But I think these are the most beautiful things. And like you said, these last two years have uh, have made us aware of, uh, and maybe that we should be more intentional with these with these things, right? So I think that's uh, that's beautiful, Michael. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate our conversation. Thank you so much for sharing. And I know I'm convinced that this conversation is going to help a lot of other people. So uh, I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. If you found this episode valuable, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a rating and review. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.